Time and again, the world bears witness to truths seldom said. Lend an ear. We promise enlightened, informed conversation. My name is Robert, and this is Seldom Said, the place where conversation matters. Welcome back. The program is called Seldom Said, the place where conversation matters. My name is Robert. Our very special guest today, Michael Bolichev oxer a world-class pianist, an individual who's known in capitals throughout the globe. He's going to be sharing his experiences with us and also his experience as an impresario and a CEO of a new music competition, the George Gershwin Competition, something that is going to be showing throughout the United States and particularly in New York City. Welcome to Seldom Said, Michael. Hello, everyone. I'm glad to be here. <laughs> it's our pleasure, I can assure you. Can we start with a little bit of personal background as to what you've been doing since the last time you were on the program? Well, I've been doing many things, both professionally as an organizer. Um, I've been traveling around the world, performing and teaching. Uh, only last year, I've attended 10 countries, including the countries that are far away from the United States and uh, China and also to Singapore, uh, some countries in Europe and especially the Baltics where I hold my annual uh, uh, festival uh, devoted to classical music, uh, international young talents who I bring from around the world and other activities. Do you find, Michael, that most of your audiences, especially foreign audiences, given that we're speaking from the States, are very receptive to classical music? Um, they are very receptive, uh, but uh, at the same time, um, recent tendencies unfortunately show that classical music uh, has been uh, not the most popular trend, especially in the hearts of younger audiences. So what we're trying to do, we're trying to change this a little bit. I'm working on a number of projects, also big projects, uh, combining music with other activities uh, so it can become a habitual part of life, just like doing the sports for well-being. Uh, music can contribute to that uh, with a uh, greater extent. And I think classical music can influence the brain and activity of the brain, especially when doing the sports in a great way. So um, I've been implementing part of the projects, um, not only the big ones, but also as part of uh, my projects as a festival to include uh, the relationship between music and sports into the regular curriculum. I think it's marvelous for young people and it should be done more consistently. Can this also be used academically as a creative nurturer to in some way uh, instigate young people and inspire them to try something different and do something new? I think it's not only can, but it should be. And I know there is a number of uh, universities in the United States and also a lot of summer uh, big festivals who start actually their mornings with the program of um, uh, relaxation uh, and doing yoga. And after that, they uh, actually go into studying because it believed it helps and it also activates certain part of nervous system to help um, to help work in the most efficient way. We're going to be listening to some of your performances, selections that will not only illustrate your talent, but show the meaningful nature 
of classical music and how it reaches the heart and soul. I would think that in a world of diversity where people speak different languages, the idea of the, uh, the G clef and the note are something that are composites to universal language. Do you consider music to be a universal language? Totally true. Um, and like Italians, people say, if you don't like music, you don't like life. <laughs> um, I wouldn't go as radical as that, though. But I would say that um, it's a glaring example would be uh, two one of the world personalities of the past, uh, the British composer uh, Benjamin Britten and uh, Russian famous cellist Mstislav Rostropovich. They shared a mutual um, mutual sympathy towards each other, and they worked a lot as a duet, playing on piano and cello, and they even devoted uh, pieces towards each other. The problem with their friendship was that neither of them spoke the language of their mother tongue. <laughs> Britain never spoke Russian, and Rostropovich never knew a word of English. How did they communicate? Well, they conveyed everything to each other through the universal language of music. So I think um, this is just one example of personal communication, but um, music is a powerful tool around uh, the world, and I think uh, it's especially vital uh, in the contemporary world of today how it can work as an ambassador to unite people and uh, to bring the peace to the world and to make uh, them all listen to each other and enjoy one of the greatest virtues um, that the God gave us, the music. Isaac Perlman was once asked how he played a particular piece. His dexterity was amazing. His response was, I don't know, I just do. Michael, your opinion in regard to the idea of natural talent as opposed to discipline instruction and progressive development, do you believe in the idea of a prodigy? I certainly do, and um, it's uh, probably too much to say of yourself, but um, I felt something like what Itzhak Perlman probably tried to describe in my uh, childhood and early teens. Um, everything that I've done at the piano came so natural that uh, I barely had to work on the things. But of course, when you get um, over a certain age, let's say six, seven, eight, um, and you start going to professional school, and I did myself, uh, you get through inavoidable training which you must do in order to um, become actually fully fledged professional and to prepare yourself for concert life. I think this kind of training when you study a lot of uh, etudes, scales and when you study pieces and it gets tougher and tougher by every year, um, it's necessary to prepare you for the life of concert artists because uh, eventually you would play a minimum of 30 concerts per year, you would travel, you would be jet-lagged, and yet you would have to come out and show your best at the very stage, at the right moment. And to do that is not always uh, related to the natural talent, but to me, much more towards the side of endurance. And this endurance and uh, certainly comes with years of uh, rigorous training, inspired, I should say, by the talent. And if you're talented, you would always possess it throughout your entire life, right? Indeed, we must agree. Many people seem to feel that 
music per se is not a physical structure. And yet, both of us have seen performers at the end of a concert literally dripping in sweat and exhausted. It is something that requires physical dexterity and stamina, does it not? It certainly does, and uh, it's not only physical uh, things that are involved here, um, but it's also a big-time emotional context and uh, uh, fill-up to the uh, performance. Um, I can also give you another example. If I would play uh, one of the most difficult transcriptions on Rachmaninoff uh, Floods of Spring, certainly this piece is a five-minute torture for pianists because it's uh, too many notes and uh, it's just uh, brutally punishing technically. But uh, if I play something like a slow piece and uh, by Tchaikovsky from the seasons, it certainly... Uh, is difficult to play because you not only have to bring out uh, the technical part, which may be not really the case here, but also the emotional side. You have to show the true, huge uh, poetic melody uh, that is engraved into these pieces. You have to bring out your heart and soul and put it virtually to every note. And I'm really not sure if the technical aspect plays the vital role here. So whenever we see an artist go out there and sweat and uh, give its entire soul, its entire psyche to the concrete performance for the audience, I think it has to do with the emotional side uh, of whatever he or she tries to uh, convey. And yes, it makes a lot of sense for them to sweat. It means they given it all to us, the audience. And we're gifted by it. Perhaps it's time to listen to an example of Michael playing Floods of Spring by Rachmaninoff. so many complex interchanges of notes 
it is very difficult to ascertain as to how someone can play so clearly and yet be heard so precisely. It is a demanding piece. How long did it take you to, in your opinion, master it? Or can you, Michael, indeed ever master a work like that? You certainly can. Um, I would recall that I had to study this one particular very quickly. I would say two weeks. <laughs> um, but uh, to be serious about it, I just say that this kind of level of pieces, you have to re uh, come back to it and revisit it. And uh, we learned these kind of pieces throughout our entire life. Because if you come back to this kind of piece with that kind of technical um, difficulty and sheer beauty, you always discover something new, um, another jewel, another note that you want to bring out and just uh, enjoy it together with the audience. And I'm saying together with an audience because it's a mutual exchange. It's um, between the audience and yourself that can give you the necessary boost, the necessary inspiration throughout the performance. And this is always what I feel on stage. Perhaps this is an unusual corollary, but recently Emily Blunt, the actress, was asked how she could possibly play Julie Andrews' role in Mary Poppins, and she responded by saying, I was desperate to try to make the role my own. I wanted to make it so that those who watched it knew it was me and not she. Is there a piece that you have substantially made your own, Michael? One that we listen to and we say to ourselves, this is a signature piece played by Maestro Oxer. I think there are a number of, actually. Um, I uh, pioneered uh, the art of uh, transcriptions, especially those transcriptions that uh, were virtually forgotten. And uh, part of that was uh, transcriptions uh, of the music by Gershwin. Um, and uh, in particular, also the piece by Liszt. Um, it's called The Nightingale. Uh, the one of the world's famous transcriptions done by Liszt by music of Alexander Alabiev. And I love to play it virtually in every concert. Um, it's been uh, certainly played by other musicians and artists, but I like to bring out uh, my own interpretative findings uh, and uh, certain discoveries that I have uh, in this piece. Yubi Blake, a marvelous ragtime pianist, was once asked, does he memorize pieces? Does he read music? It seems so easy doing what you're doing. Blake took that as an insult and said, basically, I have to read music. I cannot memorize these pieces. Even though they may sound simplistic to you, they're complex and heartfelt to me. Do you feel that the reading of the music is a necessity for such pieces as Rachmaninoff's? Uh, if you're talking about the initial uh, stage when you just get familiarized yourself with the piece uh, from the uh, first get-go, when you're just reading the piece, um, yes, and I think uh, some certainly some level of preparation needs to be there. And the question you just asked is always works uh, for everybody in a personal way. It all depends on personal ability, how quickly they learn, how quickly they memorize the piece, and certainly about, about the piece itself, the level of technical difficulty 
and uh, what the piece is made of. But I would say from my own perspective that um, it always came very not so difficult way for me to learn new pieces. I tend to memorize new works uh, naturally, which means that if I studied this for maybe three to five days, uh, I would sort of know it. And then I prefer actually to work on the musical part once I memorized it, I just played. And um, I try to get inspiration when I play and I don't look at the music because if I don't look into music, it certainly um, distracts my um, interpretative part, my inspiration by visionary context. So if I look into music, I actually tend to get distracted. I always notice things new. Um, particularly that's true of the music uh, of the 20th century and especially Bach because uh, Bach actually has very little um, markings uh, written in the score, if you look into your text edition. So a lot of things you would have to um, figure out yourself based on the styles that you know. On the other hand, if I study a very serious work, Beethoven Sonata, or a large-scale romantic work, I would spend much more time looking into text, because I think um, in these two uh, periods of music. There was a lot of uh, things written, and especially in terms of Beethoven and Haydn and Mozart, the well-known Viennese classics. You always look at it and you discover that a lot of things are implied. They're not, some of them, which are very explicit, are in the scores, but a lot of them are not. And it really inspires me to work hours on these pieces with the text, trying to find something that they try to convey to us, to modern performers who live obviously two, three hundred years um, uh, after their lifespan, and also to add something new, something that we would add to well-known piece. And this is really um, conveys to me the greatest enjoyment of art and greatest enjoyment of studying something that I love. It's marvelous not only to be witness to such talent, but to have the innate ability to be receptive to that talent and motivated to be something new. In an earlier interview, one of the accompanists, Frank Sinatra, was discussing how Sinatra prepared for a concert of his own. He would read his lyrics as poetry, in his mind, in his dressing room. He wanted to be left alone, and he would simply go away mentally. I'm glad that you used the term inflection or inference to in some way read into a motivation in a moment. Have you ever played pieces in your mind before you took the stage, Michael, and knew exactly what you were going to do because you had already done it? Have you ever, per se, done Rhapsody in Blue, which we'll hear a section of in a moment, mentally, so that one particular segue or chorus or jump, which initially sounds difficult, now sounds more precise and more focused because in your mind you've worked out the change? Have you mentally conducted a concert on the piano without playing simply thinking of it. 
Yes, uh, certainly. And uh, this brings me to one of the my personal discoveries. Um, I like to even practice in the way that you describe now without even looking into the music and without sitting at the piano, but just sort of imagining the score and playing it out in my mind, pointing myself to the uh, concrete places and spots where I should focus on more or those that are come naturally. And especially uh, since you mentioned the Rhapsody in Blue piece I love to play and I recorded it on numerous occasions with multiple orchestras, I uh, like to sing and plan ahead what I will do with the orchestra or what I will do with the clarinet who plays several times the solo. Um, I think it's pretty much entertaining to just um, think about it in a kind of dreamy way because if you dream and you imagine how it would come to the reality and how it would work, that uh, is one of the approaches that I would recommend to the generations of uh, musicians, especially younger musicians, to develop that kind of insight where they can project what they hear inside to the outside, to the actual time of the performance. And you may compare it to a certain kind of musical meditation, but uh, I would say it's bringing together simply what you hear inside your true interpretation of the piece and putting it into physical uh, things right at the moment when you have to just come out there and present. Uh, to me, that was one of the rudimentary questions for many students, something that um, even for professionals, something that they could not present to the full expand of uh, their uh, talent. And I think it's something that is needed to give in some sort for future references. In the reciting of lyrics or the reading of poetry or the making of a speech, people approach it differently. Orson Welles said that he could simply start talking and an hour later stop because you asked him to. He would just riff. It would be a jazz piece. Lincoln wrote everything down. Do you find a correlate between jazz, which is based on improvisation, Gershwin, and classical music, which is based on an element of structure? Well, I would say that in every jazz there is an element of a structure. Uh, just likewise, in every classical music there is a slight, at least, the element of improvisation. So I think um, both styles... Uh, sooner or later, they interchange in some ways. In the uh, Rachmaninoff's pieces, you find numerous instances of uh, jazz chord influxes, especially in the pieces that he composed um, following the uh, Russian Revolution, following the time when he left Russia first to uh, Europe and then uh, traveling on the way to the United States. Um, his uh, concerto number three, if you think about the last measure, the piano part, you have a 13th chord written there, a jazz chord. And not only there, but in many occasions throughout this piece, if you think about the main theme of the second movement, um, it's one of the most uh, beautiful and astoundingly beautiful melodies Think of his uh, um, Paganini Rhapsody. 
and many other uh, pieces, um, especially his preludes and late preludes. You find the instances of jazz chords and melodies everywhere, even occasionally some jazz rhythms. And certainly um, Rachmaninoff uh, was influenced uh, by the jazz music to some extent, and I can mention a few names as well. Likewise, Gershwin... Um, certainly is associated as a jazz composer, but let's not forget that he traveled to Paris with an intent to study with Nadia Boulanger, and uh, he was um, uh, basically studying a lot of influences from the European uh, arts. His accompaniments are based on uh, largely the German and especially French tradition, which is why he was such a big fan of uh, Maurice Ravel, and he also met him. So the two styles, we can say, influenced each other, and it's in the 20th century, the great golden century, where we had most uh, um, famous and uh, great pianists um, in the this is when the two uh, styles really collide and they present something which we all know and enjoy uh, today. Especially in the music of George Gershwin, um, it's uh, there is a, such a mixture of styles presents and it's not a mixture in the bad sense. It's a mixture, certainly an amalgamation of such things we would never think uh, coexist together. Um, as I said earlier, he drew upon European tradition of composition. He worked at the uh, Tin Pan Valley, uh, where he basically just uh, presented uh, the newly composed jazz song, and he put into rhythms and traditions of that time. He used uh, the Jewish uh, songs, the Gospels, uh, and African-American spirituals, Latin American music, and he put it all amazingly into his unique style. And this is actually the reason why I wanted to name my competitions that I organize every two years by the name of George Gershwin, because I think in terms of his influence and his stature for uh, not just American music, but the world music, he's to me uh, the number one composer in this country. When Ravel first presented the Bolero, a reviewer said he could sense sexuality. He could feel it. He didn't have to view it. He heard it in the notes. When I hear Rhapsody in Blue, which is a favorite piece, I feel the city, the tension, the running, the confusion, the horns. You then do agree with me that Rhapsody in Blue is a classic piece, equal to many that are traditional. I would say it's a classic in its own terms. It's a classic uh, within the Gershwin. Um, classic is a something that is a very broad concept to really apply to a specific piece, uh, in my opinion. Um, but uh, with the number of popularity of this particular piece and uh, the way um, that there are so many different themes and beautiful themes are presented, I would agree and I would say it's a, a great uh, piece of its own. Um, and it's certainly... a biggest inspiration that I had for many years when I performed this piece. It's also worth mentioning that the piece um, 
it, it's certainly a concerto, although it's a one-movement piece, a fantasy. <clears throat> but uh, the size, <clears throat> excuse me, of the piece is not large. <clears throat> it's only fourteen minutes, uh, so certainly it's a perfect um, way to present a concerto in a smaller. Uh, shorter periods of time within the concert. And in terms of programming for any recital or any piece, it would certainly fit very well if you ask any manager or concert presenter. It's easy to pair with the longer symphony, even the Mahler symphony, if you're really looking for a two-hour um, concert. And then the world-class pianist would come out and play this piece. So I think in all aspects of the presentation of a concerto, it's uh, certainly the great piece and the classics of today. It's well put. One then does have to pre-organize their thoughts in thinking of something like Rhapsody in regard to judging it as a short story in a library full of major tomes, but one has to start at the short story initially. Let's take a a sample of Rhapsody in Blue and let us un let us enjoy it. <laughs> instructor at Columbia University who, having taken a group of musicians to listen to Madame Butterfly, was asked, uh, what will keep us from being bored? And she responded by saying, just wait for the first aria. That's the way Rhapsody strikes. It arrests you, it stops you, it makes you listen. Ergo, the Gershwin competition. 
Can you describe it for us, Michael, its history, where it's been, how you developed it, and where it's going? Well, the competition started in 2013. Um, it's been uh, already three editions. With every edition, it's been taking place in uh, Big Apple, New York City, and it's been growing. Um, part of the uh, some of the editions we did in the Brooklyn, New York, where the uh, Gershwin was born. And uh, we've been trying to develop this uh, throughout the six-year span that uh, I've spent working on the competition. Um, the uh, competition presented not only piano, but also a separate competition for winds and brass, a separate competition for voice, and uh, string instruments combined, which is viola, uh, violin, cello, and bass. And uh, it's uh, presented one of the most notable winners who basically um, have a tremendous success over the years. Uh, winner of the competition 2017, um, Lee uh she was uh, presented with a great honor to perform at the It's External of the Carnegie Hall uh, during the Sibelius Concerto. The same, uh, 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 the same concerto was performed in the same stage uh, in 2017 by third prize winner of the competition, Armenian violinist uh, Nune Milikian. Uh, there has been a number of great, uh, great winners uh, throughout the year. And uh, we've been trying to present them with uh, uh, great opportunities. As the Chamber Music, we presented uh, another concert at Carnegie Hall while Recital Hall with several of the winners performing together um, as a sextet, and I was on the piano. Uh, and uh, they additionally, they received uh, um, recordings on numerous labels, they performed uh, as part of the we, uh, weekend series, uh, doing concerts in uh, New York and outside, and um, they've been interviewed on the classical radio eighty-eight point one, many of them, and uh, with a special thanks to Robert Amata who did the wonderful uh, interviews for them. So we've been uh, working uh, a lot to do the exposure for them. Um, and uh, it's been judged by uh, many of the uh, leading uh, musicologists and professors uh, around the world. Um, the preselections usually take place uh, every two years because uh, is, this is done in order to give time for the new talents to grow up. Um, but also to give us time to prepare for the best conditions to welcome people to New York City. And in 2017, we welcomed participants from tw uh, 29 countries around the world and uh, 20 of the American states, which was a big competition. Um, the next edition, 2019, will take place in New York City. Uh, we plan to do it in uh, Manhattan, partly in Brooklyn, but also might uh, some performance take uh, in on Long Island. And <coughs> we welcome all the participants to uh, take part of the competition. Additions will take place not only in New York City, 
but uh, in three other places around the United States, on the West Coast, in the California, uh, in a mountain zone in Phoenix, Arizona, and in uh, also in Chicago, where uh, participants could arrive from certain state and they can partake in live auditions. Um, of course, we have auditions in the uh, Asian region as well as in Europe uh, for those who cannot make it that far traveling to the United States. But if uh, they certainly feel that it's uh, uh, traveling, it takes a mile for them, they can certainly apply by sending the video recording to the competition website. And I think it's going to be a marvelous event this time. It is going to be exciting. It always has been for the purpose of explanation, let us say an individual in the audience is saying to themselves, I'd like my son, my daughter, myself, my spouse, to perform in the competition. What need I do to at least be considered as a participant? How do you screen your competitors? What do you look for? We look for talent, inspiration, and creativity which is why we uh, require participants to submit video recording um, and to see not only how they play, how they play Gershwin, how they play classical pieces, but how do they also look on stage. Um, in our contemporary time, it matters a lot, everything as a whole package. And um, in order for us as a presenter um, and the big competition to give them inspiration and opportunities to perform, to put their name outside of their own shell on the map of the concert artists and performances. Uh, we need to see how well they can present themselves. And we look uh, for inspiration that they would give it uh, with their performance, whether it's a voice, a piano, or a string instrument. Um, the competition 2019 will present uh, two categories uh, in piano performance, uh, young artists and uh, those which are older than 18 years old. And the same will go for the voice and the string instruments. Um, we have uh, various um, possibilities to do it, and we hope that the competition, which will take place this year from November 5th to 12th, will open a new names and a new horizons uh, for them. It was said that Maria Callas was an actress who sang rather than a singer who acted. In point of fact, are we saying that in contemporary times, presentation is as important as talent? Well, I would say that in our particular art, music, uh, presentation is not as important as, for example, for uh, actor, where presentation is everything. They live in their role. Yet, when you perform, when you're on stage, certain uh, acting is involved, and I strongly do believe in it. Uh, even if you play in a piece which is not related to program music, like there is no basic idea, it's just a piece, let's say, by um, Prelude by Bach or a Prelude by Scrabbing. 
We have no idea unless we carefully examine the sources, the literature, and the letters of the composers, how they were personally inspired when writing this piece. Yet, uh, when you don't examine, you just have to use your own imagination what this piece might convey. And then you use this imagination as your personal inspiration on stage. You live through it and then you present yourself to the world. Um, in one of the interviews, uh, great Russian pianist uh, Svetoslav Richter was said, the way you perform Schubert A major uh, sonata is a very unique way simply because uh, you have so much to imagine which even composer never had. And then the interviewer asked him, well, can you share us your thought? And he said, well, I imagine that Schubert looks uh, out into the window and sees his son arriving and passing by. And the interviewer said, wait, but Schubert never had a son. And he said, who cares? This could be the most marvelous moment for him, and this is what I imagine when I play the main theme of the sonata. I think that's supposed to tell you something, that artistic side, the presentation and what you feel inside is our acting, and this is what we must try to present throughout outside. For those in the listening audience who would like to plug into the Gershwin, can you give them contact information, the website, and any communicative information? Certainly, uh, they can uh, visit the website. Uh, it's very simple. It's www.gershwincompetition.org. You can read all the information. The applications for this competition will be open in uh, five days. Uh, you can submit your recording, and um, there is also contact information, uh, an email and phone numbers, uh, which are available on the website, and you can certainly uh, reach out uh, to us. And um, I welcome everyone to sign up to this wonderful competition. If you live in Europe um, on in July this year, um, we plan to do the audition in Riga, Latvia, uh, for the Gershwin competition for Europeans, and it's going to be done by uh, us at the Elian Baltic International Music Festival, the festivals that I have been doing in uh, Northern Europe, Baltic countries, and Scandinavia for five years, and it's going to be sixth anniversary. You can also read about this particular edition uh, and um, sign up for this competition at www.alien. A-L-I-O-N, BalticFestival.com. And um, I think uh, it, over there it's also a great idea to present yourself because the winner of this audition is presented with performance uh, with orchestra every year. The depth of your talent, Michael, not only includes playing with a dexterity, which is admirable, it also includes composition, a two-part question. Can a competitor in the Gershwin play their own composition? And secondly, do you enjoy composing as much as playing? 
I've been doing composition throughout my entire life, um, basically since I remember myself sitting at the piano. Um, from my deep childhood, I took lessons uh, with one of the most uh, famous composer in Russia, the great melodist of his time, uh, Tihan Hrenikov, who wrote many wonderful pieces, also a lot of um, iconic uh, melodies in Russia, especially in relation to the movie uh, music. And um, he took me under his supervi uh, supervisor guidance when I was like really young. So the time I was starting to do in piano, it was basically at five, six, I started to compose. And I started to compose uh, basically through the art of improvisation. Um, and uh, I just enjoy sitting at the piano and doing things. And eventually, uh, after two years of improvisation at this age, I've noticed that some of the melodies take a certain shape, and not only melodies, but accompaniments. And that's how I realized that I can actually compose the piece. And so even now these days, I write many pieces, orchestral pieces, uh, chamber music works, and also works for solo instruments. I also do lots of uh, pieces transcribing music by the composers, especially doing a lot of transcriptions now for violin, um, doing a lot of this uh, with a great uh, person and partner um, who I play with, a very close person to me, Anastasia Dehan Kozlova, who uh, enjoys playing these transcriptions. One of these big transcriptions was uh, played... Um, in uh, Tallinn, Estonia, where I do my annual music festival, and uh, it was done in October, and it's been uh, a transcription by Sans Sans Dance Macabre that I transcribed just for a duet, um, violin and cello. And it was so inspiring to hear it done in a live performance. It's a marvelous introduction to our next selection. It's time to hear a composition by Michael Bulleger of Oxer, Sonata for Cello and Piano. Listen and enjoy.
it was quite lovely. Not only complex, but arresting emotionally. The Baltic countries have a history of using music, virtually in place of weaponry. Revolutions that are promulgated and promoted by song. There's almost a Welch influence. Bass voices, beautiful choral accompaniments and arrangements. Can you, Michael, tell us a little bit about Alien Festival in Riga, in Estonia? Give us some of the detail and the feeling. I've been fascinated by the style of Baltic music, not only in Estonia, but in uh, Riga, which is also a wonderful city. And um, this year it will become a capital of the Alien Baltic International Music Festival, the projects that I've been doing in these countries for uh, a great number of years, since 2014. It started uh, the very next year after the Gershwin International and it inspired uh, throughout the uh, its uh, summer seasons many great artists and also attracted participants from 54 various countries uh, from all around the world and I should say six continents from Australia to the United States. Uh, what we do there is the Summer Music Academy, where you can learn from great masters uh, of uh, performance, just to mention a few names, uh, renowned uh, pedagogue and pianist Dmitry Bashkirov, um, a great, uh, absolutely superb violinist from France, Pierre Moyal, um, cellist Alexander Boslov and many other notable names uh, for American listeners. One name that would certainly ring the bell is the great pianist Daniel Pollock, who was a laureate of the first uh, Tchaikovsky competition in Moscow to, together with Van Clyburn and uh, many other names. You can um, attend the Alien Baltic International Music Festival and enjoy the pristine uh, beauty uh, of these countries inspired by uh, the great uh, masters who not only teach, but they play many concerts. We also bring their uh, world-famous uh, ensembles such as St. Petersburg String Quartet and um, orchestras who attend the festival on various occasions. And uh, it's a great opportunity for students, especially for uh, string instruments, winds and brass, uh, and to some extent piano and percussion to be part of these orchestras, to sit shoulder to shoulder with professionals and uh, to learn uh, what they can do in the orchestra environment. And um, I also invite everyone to see this wonderful project. Again, the uh, website to go to is www.alionbalticfestival.com. And, and again, this uh, summer we will do a sixth consecutive season. Um, the Summer Academy will take place in Riga with concerts also for students taking place in uh, several Estonian cities, in uh, Latvia, which is Riga, Lithuania, a beautiful country of its own, and the concert at the Great uh, Church of the Rock in Finland, Helsinki, where we do um, 
every year concert we organize it there and it's a tremendous gift for us to be there so I want to um, bring out uh, this uh, project uh, to the table for everyone who listens, for the young audience, and hope they can come this year to this festival and enjoy. It was my great pleasure to hear Van Klebren speak of his victory in Russia in music competition and how he described Russia as my beautiful Russia my lovely Russia. I'm reminded of the men in Tallinn who, when faced with the threat of incursion, sang. Do you feel, in a sense, we paint pictures and illustrate emotions auditorily in our minds when we listen to great music representative of great cultures? We certainly listen to great music and for Van Clyburn um, this particular competition was a time of epiphany when he realized his truly potential could be uncovered and in the country that nobody would expect that to happen at that time in 1958 not to get into the politics but it, that was the time when two countries engaged into a Cold War and basically what Van was able to achieve took him to a completely new level of an artist, something that we call today an ambassador of art. With his great victory and with Soviet officials, the Khrushchev allowing him to get what he deserved, it ended basically the Cold War at that time and it's welcomed new negotiations between the countries who immediately became France. There is a number of ambassadors uh, these days in the world of art, um, not to mention one of them, the most obvious is Long Long and Yo-Yo Ma. These people, also Itzhak Perlman, of course, internationally renowned person who not only is who are not only great performers, but they bring a lot of things to make classical music popular around the world. They show all the advantages of the profession, why you should study it. And they give to the world the most important uh, gift that we can give, the gift of loving this great art, the music. In my terms, um, I wouldn't measure myself being as the same caliber as these people, but I'm trying to do also um, things from my own side, inspiring uh, musicians and also the schools in the local communities in the greater New York and those uh, in Long Island. I would like to also mention the great school, um, the Roslyn uh, Enrichment Center here uh, in Roslyn. What they do not only in terms of science and school subjects and chess for the little kids, they really create a nurturing environment for young musicians to grow and to reach uh, for the stars. Um, I think it's one of the uh, best uh, schools uh, in the local environment. And uh, the director, Marina Roussian, is a person who really cares about kids 
in not only presenting them uh, to learning education in English, but in other languages, which is truly all around uh, education you can get. And as we know very well, whatever we learn before the age of eight, nine, and 10 stays with us forever. And I think it's very important to grow a new generation of intellectuals, not only in music, but in all forms of art. And I praise her for this initiative and doing the same with my music. I can certainly substantiate your opinion of the Rosalind Richmond Center. Marina Terentieva, the founder and the coordinator of the activities on campus, has created a marvelous circumstance whereby young people can move, at least incrementally, toward those moments that a man like Clyburn felt when he made that statement. He was affected and afflicted with a disease which would eventually take his life, and yet he was referring to a loving moment, a romance, a love affair. My Russia, my beautiful Russia. He was not thinking of his physiognomy. He was thinking through memory. Can you, in drawing this marvelous hour to a close, Michael, give some advice to a parent out there who thinks they have a musician in their midst. What advice would you give them? Well, certainly, if you hear your child sing, that's a first sign when you have a musician. If he or she is able to sing uh, well and you recognize the tunes, that's a clear sign. The next step, if they have inclination to come to piano or any instruments that you have at your house availability and to even play or try to play something, there is a third very clear sign that you might have a new, very talented musician. I would advise to uh, definitely to consider it seriously, take him to a school where he can be tried for his talent um, and uh, take it from there. I would also give you a strong advice to listen, to give the child to listen to a lot of uh, recordings done, not just uh, for the music that you love, um, not, not only in opera or world-famous ballet, but also performances by uh, violinist, great violinist, pianist, or whatever you can to educate uh, the young person uh, in a variety of ways. Um, actually, it's something that I've been um, engulfing since I was uh, maybe three, four, five, much the time before I even approached the piano. This is what my grandmother, uh, who is famous musician too, did. She put a lot of LP recordings available at that time, and I sort of learned with the music even before knowing it. Not surprisingly, by the age of five or six, I could even harm some of the melodies, which I heard many times. And I think it's a great way to develop your child. And um, of course, if you would like to get my advice, there is a way to connect to me. 
You can find me through the websites of the uh, Gershwin Competition or Alien Baltic Festival and uh, ask my opinion about it. And I will be certainly uh, helpful to give you advice uh, on a child and uh, in many ways to give you an advice what to do next. You can also visit the Rosalind Enrichment Center because there are wonderful teachers and uh, most nurturing environment um, for the child. This draws to a close, a, a marvelous discussion, which hopefully we can repeat at a later date. It has been my pleasure, and I can assume, rightfully so, that the pleasure of our audience. Spasibo Bolshoi, Michael. Spasibo Bolshoi. Thank you, everyone, and uh, enjoy your, the rest of your day. Hope to come back here some other time soon. Be blessed and be well. Thank you. This is Seldom Said. My name is Robert. Robert.